When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome in, everybody, to episode 163 of the podcast that is sweeping America, the Aratora Sports Podcast. It is good to be back. I was gone for a whole week. The last episode dropped on July 1st. It is now July 8th as I record late into the night. It will be July 9th before most of you listen to this, but I hope you had a great holiday weekend. I, of course, did. As I mentioned on the last episode, as so many of you were kind enough to reach out to me about, I actually got married over the weekend. I had a birthday too, no big deal. So I am a year older, I am a year wiser. And I am just now a grumpy old man as a married guy. So yeah, if you're wondering, yes, I woke up a little bit achy today. Uh, I wanted dinner at 3 o'clock for some reason, which was really weird, very strange. But I was demanding dinner, and I was hoping for an early bird special. Also yelled at the neighbor kids for a little while. But I am now married, so thank you for all your kind words, your kind messages. We'll get into all of this in a moment. Before we get into it, I want to give you a little bit of rundown on today's show. So... It is going to be one of those crazy shows where this is the time of year, not obviously as much to talk about. With college football, SEC Media Days next week will probably start transitioning into a little bit of college football. For people who are not uh, regular listeners to the show or you're new over the past four, five, six months, I do talk a lot of college football in the fall. Obviously, the priority will always be college basketball, but I will be talking more football over the coming weeks. And I'm going to be talking a little bit of NBA today because Kawhi Leonard in the middle of my wedding, just shook up the entire NBA. Everything went crazy. The whole wedding shut down. I'm going to get into Kawhi, why I think this is one of the craziest things that I've ever seen in sports. Also, the ramifications that it had for other teams, including the Oklahoma City Thunder, who are now probably going to have to trade Paul George. Uh, Russell or Paul trade Paul uh, uh, Russell Westbrook excuse me the Los Angeles Lakers and all the things that come as a byproduct of the Kawhi Leonard trade I will also add that I will probably talk a little bit about Urban Meyer uh, who has released a new podcast or who will be releasing a new podcast got kind of a lot of punchlines on the internet on Monday but I actually think it's going to be kind of interesting I'm probably going to give you a different perspective we will wrap with some questions but in between I should mention very special guest today. So here's the deal. You guys know I don't do a ton of baseball, but if I'm going to get offered a great baseball guest, I'm going to take advantage. And today I was offered one of those guests, Bud Selig, the former commissioner of baseball, the guy who ran the entire sport for 25 years, joins the show. 
He had an incra- a crazy commissionership. He has a new book out called For the Good of the Game. I talked to him about his you know, 60 years in baseball now, dating back to when the Milwaukee Braves were in Milwaukee and they left and he was able to get a Major League Baseball team back to Milwaukee as the owner of the Brewers. We talked about his commissionership, steroid era, um, adding the wild card, all sorts of crazy things. So it was a really fun interview with Bud Selig. And as I mentioned, again, off the top, um, that also, 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 I'll do some questions at the end. Before we get started, want to remind everyone, the same reminders. I know I'm married. I know I'm bore, boring and old, but the same reminders always apply. Please subscribe to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can do it on iTunes. Do it on Podcast Addict. Do it on Podbean. You can do it on TuneIn Radio. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Give me a quick five stars if you can on iTunes. If you want to add a comment, that helps a ton. And then also make sure to follow on Instagram, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast on Instagram. And finally, if you have questions as Josh from Kentucky did today, which I will address at the end of the show, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. I'm going to get started on Kawhi Leonard in a second. There is one more thing that I have to say, and I hope I articulate this really well. Um, Last Wednesday, as I was getting ready to leave for my wedding, um, we obviously... The world found out about the passing of Jared Lorenzen, the former Kentucky football star. Uh, He played in the NFL with the the New York Giants. For people who are longtime listeners of the show, Jared Lorenzen came on last summer, I would say right around a year ago now, when his documentary on his battle with obesity and his his fight against obesity came on ESPN. He came on to talk about the documentary. Um, And I would never claim to say that I know Jared Lorenzen well that was the only time I interviewed him. I think maybe we've texted once or twice more. Would never claim to know him well. I know some of my good friends uh, from Kentucky, uh, Nick Roush, Drew Franklin, truly do, and I'm sure others as well that I'm not mentioning, Matt Jones, etc., do consider Jared a friend. And so I don't ever want to uh, you know, manipulate this and say that I was the best of friends with him or that I was so close, but um, you know, he was somebody that I had on this show about a year ago, and I found him to be everything that you would expect Jared Lorenzen to be. Funny, engaging, charming, good sense of humor, uh, self-deprecating. And it was one of those interviews that I truly enjoyed. As I said, I had no relationship with Jared before, but he was one of those guys that the second we hopped on the phone, it felt like we had known each other for 30 years. And so um, I know a lot of people are in a lot of pain over his passing. Again, uh, to, to be explicitly clear, I'm not saying that he was my friend and that I knew him as well as some people that probably listen to this show do, but I just wanted to send my regards to his friends, his family, the people who really mattered to him um, because he was a really special guy. I got to talk to him that one time. Like I said, I knew it felt like I knew him forever, uh, and the world lost a really good guy last week. So uh, thoughts and prayers are with Jerry Lorenzen. I know the Kentucky Sports Radio crew is doing some incredible stuff to set up some fundraisers to help pay his kids you know, college funds and stuff like that. But I just wanted to, to, to let you guys know that uh, when Jared did come on this show, I did, in fact, appreciate his time. And, you know, I, I wish his family thought my thoughts and prayers because uh, I know this can't be easy. All right. So now let's get into this weekend because it was insane. And I don't mean to transition from something really sad with Jared Lorenzen to something, you know, less sad in sports. But we got to continue this show. We got to move on again. Thoughts and prayers are with Jared Lorenzen, but uh, in the sporting world, the insane thing happened 
during my actual wedding. And so, again, I said it off the top. Thank you guys so much. I must have had a half a dozen, a dozen, somewhere in there, um, comments and, and, and tweets and direct messages and messages on the Instagram account. The, how happy you guys were for me to enjoy the weekend, all of those great things. And so I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, I appreciate it. One thing I do not appreciate, though, is Kawhi Leonard just completely ruining my wedding. Because I'll tell you this, about 11.30 Pacific time, uh, maybe it was closer to 11, I don't know. But, uh, you know, I was, I was Beyonce. I was drunk and in love on the dance floor. I was having the time of my life. And my buddy pulls me aside. He said, did you see what happened in the NBA right now? I said, no, what happened? He said, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George are going to the Los Angeles Clippers. And I said, wait, what? what, what? Kawhi and Paul George? What is going on? And this was one of, to me, one of the shocking moves in NBA history that not only is Kawhi Leonard going to the Clippers, that's not the shocking part, but that he orchestrated the Paul George trade to go along with it. Um, and I'm going to get into Paul George in a minute because I have a lot of thoughts on him. But for this to happen the way that it did was unbelievable. And I think it it kind of helps explain everything that happened in free agency in the lead up to that point. And what I mean is this, is that if you guys followed free agency closely, there was this rumor early on that seemed kind of weird at the time that Kawhi Leonard was uh, had reached out to Kevin Durant about playing with the Clippers. And it kind of lost steam really quick because Kevin Durant signed immediately with the Brooklyn Nets and it didn't seem as though it was this really serious thing. Um, and then the week goes on and you hear that the Clippers are, are now out of the picture, that the Toronto Raptors and that the Los Angeles Lakers are the two teams that he's choosing from. And you kind of wondered why the decision took so long. I mean, it went into Friday when it felt like from about Tuesday on, maybe even Monday on, that the... Those were the only two choices. And it seemed like it was the, a tough decision for Kawhi. Do I return to Toronto? Do I try to continue what we've built there? I am an NBA champion, but I know the Lakers are going to be better next year. I know that the, the Rockets are still going to be a threat. I know that the Warriors are going to bounce back. Eventually, Brooklyn's going to be a team to, to deal with. So do I return to Toronto or do I go to the Lakers and join a super team? Do I go to the Lakers and all of a sudden I'm playing with LeBron, I'm playing with Anthony Davis, I don't have to play 80 games a season. Even if I go back to Toronto and they do the load management thing, I almost died in the playoffs because I almost went, my, my body almost broke down in the playoffs because, um, you know, like, like I had no help. And so it seemed like that was the decision. And what we found out later was that was all a gimmick because the whole time Kawhi was trying to get uh, the Clippers behind the scenes, he was trying to buy them time to see if they could get another superstar. And so to me, that is the most amazing thing. Again, I was at my wedding. I was on the dance floor, drunk in love, uh, you know, uh, uh, bumping and grinding, doing things that Grandma Torres wouldn't approve of. And all this time, I, I find out that Kawhi and Paul, and I'm saying, how did Paul George get in the, in the middle of this? And it turns out that Kawhi had orchestrated this. And so to me, that was the most incredible thing, right? is that we have the Lakers who have literally been tampering with guys for years. I mean, Magic Johnson was trying to talking about Paul George three years ago. LeBron basically ruined both the Lakers and the Pelicans seasons by tampering to get Anthony Davis, and it didn't happen during the regular season, and it resulted in both teams being a complete disaster. 
And here's Kawhi Leonard, the guy that nobody is talking about, the guy that doesn't talk himself, the guy that doesn't speak a word, the guy that you think doesn't communicate, is orchestrating one of the most incredible things I've ever seen, which was Paul George getting traded to the Clippers without anyone having any hint that this was coming. And that's the most amazing thing to me. In this world we live in, where there are so many leaks and there are so many rumors, and we knew a year ago that Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving were going to be teaming up in New York. We didn't know it was Brooklyn, but we knew they were going to be teaming up. Everyone said it's the Knicks that ends up being the Nets. We knew a year before LeBron left Cleveland, yeah, he's probably leaving to go to, uh, to, go to the Los Angeles Lakers. Here is Kawhi Leonard, the guy who doesn't say a single word ever without anybody knowing, orchestrating this unbelievable trade to get a second star to the Los Angeles Clippers. And by the way, when I say no one knew, I mean no one. I We had on, I worked Fox Sports Radio on Monday. We had Chris Haynes, the guy from Yahoo, who's one of the best insiders in the NBA, right, right up there with Woj, right up there with Shams, right up there with all of them. And he said he had no clue until like seconds before the news broke that Paul George was involved at all in this trade. And to me, it's just stunning that this whole thing could go down without a single leak, without anybody knowing, and with Kawhi, the guy who says nothing, orchestrating it all. And so to me, what I think it says to me is a couple things, a couple big takeaways here. One, shout out to Jerry West. The logo is now officially probably the GOAT executive in the history of the NBA. This is the guy that put together those those uh, Lakers championship teams in the early 80s with Magic Johnson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He's the guy that got who drafted Kobe out of high school at 13th overall, traded Vlade Divac, get Kobe, got Shaq to L.A. Keep in mind that from L.A. after the Lakers, he went to the Warriors. He convinced the team not to trade Klay Thompson when they were going to trade him for Kevin Love. And then he convinced Durant, Kevin Durant to come to Golden State. And now he not only gets Kawhi, but he pulls off Paul George as well. So that's one takeaway. The logo is now the GOAT executive. I mean, th- there's nobody. Patrick or Pat Riley might be close. There's nobody with a track record like that. That's one. Two, and I truly believe this, I think Kawhi Leonard is now the number one alpha in the NBA, as in he is the baddest dude in the NBA. And here's what I mean by that, is because uh, I was thinking about this, is that for years, LeBron James was the, was the son. Everything revolved around him. And not only did everything revolve around him, but like every, everything just revolved around him, right? I mean, you know, and, and, and guys were willing to take less money. Um, guys were do, willing to do anything to play with him. Dwayne Wade put his entire legacy on the line, star of the Heat, takes a backseat to play with LeBron. Chris Bosh, star in Toronto, goes to Miami to be the number three player. You have all sorts of veterans taking cheap contracts to play with him. He gets to Cleveland. He automatically, as soon as he comes in, convinces Kevin Love to come be part of what they're doing in Cleveland, convinces J.R. Smith to, to, to uh, okay a trade, and there's so many. And, and everywhere he's gone... He's basically gotten whatever he's wanted because he's LeBron James. And now you look at it. I mentioned this. The Lakers were trying to recruit Paul George for two years. He ends up in Oklahoma City. And all of a sudden, he gets traded to the Clippers. Um, 
And I just look at that, and what I say is, this is Kawhi taking the mantle. So first of all, let's remember with Kawhi, this is a guy that a year ago, I think we all thought he was like a nice, like a, like a good player in, in San Antonio. This guy goes to Toronto, and good is relative, right? He won a finals MVP, finished second in MVP voting, but I think if we were having a conversation about best players in the NBA, he's behind LeBron, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, James Harden, maybe Russell. Like, he's behind a bunch of guys. He goes to Toronto, single-handedly leads them to a championship, and is unquestionably the best player in the playoffs. Go, LeBron doesn't even make the playoffs goes head-to-head with Giannis, beats him, goes head-to-head with Philadelphia that has basically four all-star caliber players and Jimmy Butler, Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, and Tobias Harris beats them. Um, goes to the final, say what you want. No Kevin Durant, I get it. They still had Steph Curry. They still had Klay Thompson until the, the end of the last game. Uh, they still had Andre Iguodala. They still had Draymond Green. And Kawhi Leonard leads them to a championship. And then on top of leading them to a championship... He looks LeBron in the eye and says, I got to be honest. I don't want to come play with you. I think I'm better than you. I'm going to go be the LeBron of the Clippers and then orchestrates this unbelievable trade involving Paul George to the Clippers. And again, LeBron, you know, he thinks that, oh, I got Anthony Davis. This is the next thing. We're going to run this league. And now LeBron's left scrambling. The Lakers are left scrambling. We're going to get to the Lakers in a minute. But when it comes to Kawhi, I think this was his moment to throw down the gauntlet. Like, no, this is my league now. Because guess what? The Clippers are, in fact, the favorites in the NBA. And I think this was a real strategic, smart move by Kawhi. Because if Kawhi had gone to the Lakers, then he would always be playing in LeBron James' shadow. And that's not fair, but that's reality. LeBron is the biggest star in the NBA, even though I think you can make a case that Kawhi has surpassed him as a two-way player. And if Kawhi goes to the Lakers, no matter what happens, he's always playing in LeBron's shadow. If something goes bad, it's it's not LeBron's fault, it's his. He didn't want to get involved in the circus with LeBron James and his agent trying to control everything, get Anthony Davis, sign free agents. You know, the the, the agent is a real problem. Because if you're not his client, you're on the outside looking in. He's also probably looking at LeBron saying, and this is a conversation we had on Fox Sports Radio, like how committed is LeBron to basketball at this point in his career? He's filming Space Jam 2. He's got the shop. He's got a million other little shows and, and TV things going on. And so I think Kawhi said, I think I'm better than you. I'm going to go do my own thing in your building, in your city, and I'm going to pull off this unbelievable trade to get a guy. And I look at that team now with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, Patrick Beverly, an incredible defensive player, Montrez Harrell, young guy. I do think they're the best team in the NBA. And I do think, I do see why the Clippers are the favorites. I'm not saying they're going to win it, but I do see why they are, in fact, the favorites. Now, transitioning to some other things, um, first of all, with the Lakers, they're still good. But I don't know that LeBron James and Anthony Davis is enough. And I didn't really like what they did in the aftermath of the Kawhi Leonard stuff. Because if you look at it, it felt like there wasn't a plan B for the Lakers. It felt like they put all their eggs in the Kawhi basket. And then when Kawhi wasn't available, they just scrambled. And they went and signed Boogie Cousins. They went and signed Rajon Rondo. They went and signed Danny Green. They went and signed Quinn Cook. And I'll be honest, like, yeah, I like Danny Green. I think he's a nice piece. 
But the rest of those guys, I don't know, man. And, like, look, I know there's a lot of Kentucky fans listening to this show. I think DeMarcus Cousins and Rajon Rondo are living off their past reputations. I mean, DeMarcus Cousins, you you guys know I love that guy. I wrote a freaking book about that guy, One and Fun. And when I look back on DeMarcus Cousins, I have great memories of him. But I can't help but see what has happened the last year. He had a major Achilles injury, comes back from that injury, then hurts his quad, or it's his calf or his quad, whatever it was, in the NBA playoffs, comes back, and he wasn't the same player. He was really, really not that good in the finals. And I know he's going to get better with more rehab, and he rushed back because he wanted to play in the finals, and I think that's a really commendable thing. But I also think, like, we got to be honest and we got to be real about DeMarcus Cousins. Is he still that all-star caliber player? Will he ever get back to being that all-star caliber player? I really don't know. I honestly don't know. And I, and I think that to bring him in as kind of a stopgap, I don't like it. What is he doing? You don't need more depth on the, on the, the inside. You still have, you, you have Anthony Davis. What you need is more three-point shooting, guys that can make plays off the dribble, guys that can defend at a good level. You don't need DeMarcus Cousins. Rajon Rondo. Look, Rondo's fun, but I don't know. I think he's living off a little bit of his reputation. Lakers already announced today that LeBron's playing point guard. Rondo can't shoot. So if you're playing Rondo off the ball, what are you really doing? Is he really like that guy? I mean, Quinn Cook's fine, I guess. But to me, I just didn't like what the Lakers did. It reeked of desperation. It reeked of the idea that maybe just maybe they didn't have a backup plan. And, like, I think the Clippers are very clearly a better team right now. I would add. I think there are other teams that are going to give the Lakers a run for their money. I think the Rockets are actually pretty good. I know the Rockets are trying to trade for everybody and blow everything up, but it's like they were also a year away from beating Kevin Durant and all them two years ago. And maybe with no Oklahoma or maybe with no Golden State, the Rockets are now the favorites in the West. I'm not saying they are, but I think they might be better than the Lakers. I think the 76ers might be better than the Lakers. I think the Denver Nuggets with the emergence of our guy, Jamal Murray, who I love. I love that guy. I've been trying to get him on this podcast for a year. Agent keeps telling me no. I think he's a rising star. So I think Denver's in the conversation. I don't know about Utah, but Utah is pretty good too. And so to me, I think the Lakers are in a really interesting spot. I don't believe that they got significantly better after they made the Anthony Davis trade. I think it's going to be a lot on LeBron's shoulders, a lot on AD's shoulders. And if those guys don't come through, um, I think it could be problematic. Finally, I want to wrap with the NBA stuff. Then we'll get to a little Urban Meyer. Then we'll get to Bud Selig um, with the Oklahoma City Thunder. Because, look, when this came down, I immediately felt bad for the Oklahoma City Thunder and I felt bad for Russell Westbrook. And I think it's easy in this situation. There's a lot of guys in the national media, and I'm one of them, I do radio, who just don't like Russell Westbrook. And, oh, this is an indictment on him as a guy and guys don't want to play with him. And I don't buy that, man. What I buy, first of all, people talk about Paul George demanding a trade like, like the Thunder went 20 and 52 last year. Or 62. Yeah, 20 and 62. Math, not my strong suit. I'm getting old. I'm married. My brain's starting to go. People talk about Oklahoma City like they went 20 and 62. They won 49 games last year. They're not a bad team. Russell Westbrook did his part. Now, I know they haven't advanced in the first round, out of the first round, 
But say what you want about Oklahoma City. They were continuing to tinker with that roster. They were continuing to try to improve it until they got the news that Paul George was on the trade, that Paul George was demanding a trade. And, like, I feel bad for OKC. You know, three years ago, they were planning for Kevin Durant to come back. That was the year they got Victor Oladipo. That was the year they, they drafted Sabonis. And Durant bailed. And this year, they're planning on life with Paul George, and Paul George demands a trade. And everyone wants to blame Westbrook. You know who I blame? I blame Paul George. You know why? Because that guy signed a four-year contract last summer, and he's bailing on that contract after one year. And I get that it's a better situation for him, but man, I got to be honest, like, I don't like the precedent. You know, all these trade demands are a little bit different, right? Like, there are guys that demand a trade or ask for a trade six months out or it's coming up on the last year of the contract and the team isn't very good and they know that they're going to leave after the season. Okay, I get that. Even with Anthony Davis, I didn't really like Anthony Davis, but Anthony Davis gave seven or eight years, whatever it was, to New Orleans. They didn't build a contender around him. I don't even know who was... I guess they had DeMarcus Cousins for a year, healthy, a half a year. Like, who were the best players that played with Anthony Davis? So, like, even though I disagree with Anthony Davis demanding a trade with two years left on his contract, like, I do kind of get it. I mean, the New Orleans was a disaster. But Paul George signed a year ago, made a big deal about it, did a whole documentary series about the decision to return to Oklahoma City, and then a year later he bails? Because it's personally better for him? And like part of me is I get that. Like, yeah, you want to win a championship. Your your window is closing. But whatever happened to like signing a contract and committing to it? Again, it's one thing if there's six months left on the deal. But three years after you just signed it and the team did its job, made the playoffs, and is continuing to try to co- try to compete at the highest level? Like, come on, man. Like, what what else are they supposed to do? And I'll be honest. I also, I also think it is a very bad sign for the NBA going forward because if Paul George is going to demand a trade this year, what's to say? Let's say Kawhi Leonard twists his ankle, can't play in the NBA playoffs, and the Clippers lose in the first round. And then LeBron James calls him and says, you know what, that Clippers thing didn't really work out. You should demand a trade to the Lakers. Paul George just set the precedent that he's willing to do that. What if Kemba Walker calls and says, you should come to Boston? Or Al Horford calls and says, you should come to Philly or whatever. The point is, Paul George just admit, just was willing to walk out on a contract, demand a trade after one year. I don't like the president because you know that what that says to me? It says to me that these guys feel like, you know, they're one bad season away or one disappointing season or they don't live up to expectations away from demanding a trade. And like, I, you have to look at the NBA right now like everyone is a free agent at all times. If Paul George is going to demand a trade with three years left on his deal, if Anthony Davis is going to demand a trade with two years left on his deal, like that's a bad sign. So I don't like it, and I don't blame Russell Westbrook. And now I'm curious where the next step is. Because Russell Westbrook is now definitively on the trading block. And I'll tell you this, I, I, I think he'll get traded sooner rather than later. I don't think the Oklahoma City Thunder want to wait around I think the Miami Heat make a lot of sense, and I think it's just time for them to move in another direction. Interestingly enough, I know I talked a lot about Tyler Hero in the lead-up to the draft process, how good that he has been. Um, I was, I was, I saw that 
The Heat do not want to include Tyler Hero in a trade, so I think he's probably safe, but maybe some of the younger guys, Bam Adebayo, um, you know, whoever it is, uh, Justice Winslow, I think those guys could be on the trading block, and I think all of a sudden uh, Miami is going to be very interested in Russell Westbrook, and I think there's other teams interested in Russell Westbrook, and everyone's saying, oh, this is such an indictment of Russell Westbrook. So why are there three or four teams trying to figure out a way to trade for him right now? I completely disagree, and I, I do believe that it's a bad look for Paul George. I don't blame Russell Westbrook. And uh, it was a, it was certainly a crazy weekend in the NBA again where in the middle of my wedding, Paul George demands signs with – or Kawhi Leonard signs with the Clippers and Paul George demands a trade. And that's insane. Like I can't express to you what was going on in my mind when that happened. All right. So I want to wrap this portion of the show. And as I mentioned, former MLB commissioner Bud Selig – uh, is joining me later to talk about his new book for the good of the game. So before we get to that, did you guys see our buddy Urban Meyer announced that he is hosting a new podcast? And the first episode is actually going to be this week on on July uh, July 10th. So that'll be Wednesday. And the 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 show is called the Focus Three Podcast. And Urban Meyer says that he's going to discuss how to build elite leadership, culture, and behavior in teams and organizations. And of course, when this came out, it led to the very expected backlash from this, from social media, which was, <laughs> Urban Meyer, <sighs> uh, 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 podcast on leadership, because <laughs> like, you know, we saw what happened at Ohio State, and like, yeah, I'm not going to lie, like, this, the Zach Smith situation didn't go down well. Um, I think some of it was overreported. I think some of it was misreported. Uh, I thought Brett McMurphy by the end had a little bit of a vendetta. He was reporting on stuff that had nothing to do with crimes or anything that had to do with Urban Meyer or particularly anything to do with Zach Smith and his personal life. So I didn't like that. And so I get where that backlash comes from because, yeah, at times Urban Meyer has been a great football coach. I don't know that he's been a leader of young men, but I think even he would admit that. But I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to actually do the reverse. Like, I know I could make the, oh, what kind of leader is Urban Meyer jokes. But, like, I'm going to save those, and I'm going to tell you this. I actually think that podcast can be pretty good, and I'll tell you why. And it comes back to Zach Smith. So Zach Smith, for people who don't know, has started his own podcast. It's called the Menace to Society podcast. It's actually really good. Because Zach Smith is a guy that is out of coaching, has no intention to ever get back into coaching, and because of it, um, kind of just does a podcast where he just talks about coaching college football. And it's one of the most informative podcasts that I've ever heard. And I don't generally promote other people's shows on this one because, you know, they're competitors and I'm trying to keep the competition at arm's length away. But it's really good because he talks about what it's like to, to play with or to work for Urban Meyer. He talks about the best stadiums he's ever coached, and he talked about what it was like to coach Aaron Hernandez and Percy Harvin and Brandon Spikes and Ezekiel Elliott and all that. And so I only bring that up because one of the things that I find really interesting is Zach Smith talks a lot about Urban Meyer, the leader. And listening to Zach Smith talk about Urban Meyer, you understand why Urban Meyer's had so much success as a college football coach. It's simple, really. It's because of the fact that Urban Meyer is one of the best motivators of people that Zach Smith says that he's ever been around. And he's been around a lot of great coaches during his time. Tom Herman, Charlie Strong, um, you know, whoever. 
and he said that Urban Meyer is the best. And he gives a couple great examples. First of all, he said, you know, he this is almost a verbatim quote in the in the podcast, but he says, you know, Urban Meyer, when you work for Urban Meyer, it's fourth and goal on the one yard line every single moment of every single day. So if he comes in at 6:30 and the coffee is too cold, you're getting a you're getting a finger in your chest and he's asking you why the coffee sucks so bad and if you do it again wrong, you're out of here. I'm not tolerating this nonsense from you. And it sounds crazy, but it makes sense to me why Urban Meyer's teams always performed at such a high level because of the expectations that Urban Meyer puts on his program. Another thing that 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 Zach Smith has said is just that you know, he's really good at motivating people in weird ways. And so kind of in the same vein, but he talked a lot about how the year after they won the national championship at Ohio State, 2000, I think 2014, and then they had the number one recruiting class in the country coming in that following February. Um, Zach Smith said that, you know, everybody's flying high. Everyone's feeling good. Everyone comes in the facility like, okay, we're building something really special. And one day Urban Meyer calls a staff meeting and threatens to fire half the people because he's not happy with their output. And this was after they won a national championship and signed the number one recruiting class in the country. And so I bring all this back full circle because one of the things about Urban Meyer is he was really one of the first guys to bring in leaders from other walks of life into his program to, to speak and to commentate. And I think he, he had a thing, I think they called it Real World Wednesdays, where they'd bring in just people from the business community, people from you know major businesses, whatever, to speak to the team. And so I only bring this up because I think Urban Meyer actually has really intelligent things to say about the concept of leadership. And I think he'll have really interesting guests. And one of the things, again, that Zach Smith said was that, um, you know, during the offseason, so many coaches, you know, they'll go down and, you know, they'll go sit with Nick Saban for a couple hours and pick his brain on this or Bill Belichick or whatever. And Zach Smith said he that Urban Meyer doesn't really hang out with other coaches. He'll go to like the, the 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 CEO of Apple and have lunch with him or Warren Buffett or whoever. So I think Urban Meyer is actually get some pretty interesting guests on this show. Um, I don't know what to make of it other than that, but I did think that the commentary on the Urban Meyer podcast was maybe not quite what people think. All right, so that is it for now. Um, I think it was fun, right? We talked a little bit about my wedding. Talked a little bit, a lot about Kawhi Leonard. Talked a lot about Russell Westbrook, LeBron James, now Urban Meyer. So, after we hit the NBA, after we hit college football, let's go ahead and talk a little Major League Baseball. Again, Bud Selig is on the show. He is promoting his new book, For the Good of the Game. And he was, I think, really, really, really interesting. I think he was really interesting on subjects to, to do with Major League Baseball, about his time owning the Brewers, about um, his relationship with Barry Bonds as Barry Bonds broke the home run record, all those kind of things. So I think you're going to enjoy it. I will be back on the back end to answer one of your questions in the mailbag. But now here is Bud Selig. All right, and joining me on the phone now, former Major League Baseball commissioner here to talk about his new book for the good of the game out this July. Bud Selig is on the phone. Commissioner, how you doing? I'm good, Aaron. Pleasure to be with you. Well, the pleasure is mine, and I would start by asking you this, is that obviously uh, you, uh, I learned through the book that you've been involved with baseball since your early 20s uh, as a fan dating back as long as you can remember. We're a commissioner here for uh, about two decades. 
obviously you've been away from the game for a few years, at least in an official capacity. What made you want to write this book, again, called For the Good of the Game? What made you want to write this book right now? Well, you know, it's interesting. In fact, you know, I'm teaching, and my students have asked me the same question. And I tell you, here, the answer I can give you is, for a lot of years, the last four or five years of my commissionership, people have said, Dad, you've been through so much, you ought to write a book. Sure. And... Um, but I didn't. I didn't think a lot about it um, until I was done being commissioner. And then there were certain situations where I really thought that people didn't understand what happened. But I'll tell you a quick story about it. I was at the Hall of Fame, as it was every year. But Jim Rice was going in, and Doris Kearns Goodwin, the famous historian, was there with me because she had heard about Cooperstown, and she and her husband came up. And anyway, we had a we, had, we were sitting outside, and a lot of stories, Henry Aaron came over and sat down for a long time, and in the course of it, she said to me, and she knows what a history buff I am, you've got to tell these stories. Mm-hmm. You can't let this stuff go when, when you go. And so from that point on, Aaron, this, writing a book was always on my mind. Very good. I would ask you... Um not even so much from your commissionership, but from just your time now. And I don't know, I'm, I'm sure you're, you're watching games, maybe not every night, but pretty close to it. Where do you think the state of the game is? I mean, you're obviously not as hands-on now, but I'd just be curious because I do feel like baseball is kind of going through an evolution, the way the game is played. And I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. I know that certain things like revenue are still doing well, ticket sales are doing well, but it feels like in a lot of ways, at least from when I grew up to now, it doesn't feel like baseball is kind of in that consciousness the way that it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. Well, you know, that's interesting. And and let me just try to to tell you a story to answer the question, if I can. Please. Um, Because I do, I watch games every night. I know you. If there are 15 games on, Aaron, I'll watch all 15 at some point. And so I, I look at things, I watch the attendance, which is tremendous in a lot of markets, not so good in others. But in I, I, the story that I lived with in 1958, I'll tell you a quick story. There was a sports editor here by the, in Milwaukee by the name of Oliver E. Keekley. He went to a AP sports editor's conference in Dallas, and he said baseball was more fun. <laughs> it it, it this generation is not going to accept it. It's this, it's that. Football is coming on and so on and so forth, and the game is dying. Now, I've lived with that for the last 62 years, sure. 63 years. And so I've seen and heard all this. But let me say this to you. I do think attendance is picking up. I think that some teams, are, are, there's no question we have some teams and we have some division races that are virtually over. It doesn't help. I, I now, now, the wild card will help, which I'm proud of. But, I, I look, this is, you said it actually quite well. This is an evolution. Everything in life is evolutionary. And are there things that baseball will do? Yes. Are Rob Manfred and Joe Torrey and all the people involved aware of it? Of course they are. And and so I have every confidence that the gross revenues of the sport are going to the roof. The asset values are going to the roof. People are spending a lot of money on television. And if the sport was, was, was really in trouble, they wouldn't be doing that. So I guess what I would say to you, Aaron, is 
overall, I think the sport is, well, does it need some adjustments? Yes, it does. Well, and it's really funny because I, I thought you would go there because in reading your book, and, and this is something maybe I'm not as much of a historian as I need to be, but long before you were commissioner, you were you were being told and people in baseball were being told, oh, that Pete Rozelle, who was the NFL commissioner in the mid to early 70s, late 70s into the 80s, oh, baseball's in trouble. And so I, I thought you would go there. So you said it that that you would like to see some things changed. I mean, just in your personal opinion, it is only your opinion, but what would you like to see maybe a little bit different about the game going forward? Well, I'm going to leave that up to to uh, um, to, to our, our guys, but, you know, they've talked about various items, uh, whether it's a pitch clock or a um, batter staying in the box. There's a series of things that can be done, but look, I, there's no doubt they'll make those adjustments and, and they will deal with those problems. Do you think, um, and one thing that kind of stands out to me, and you can disagree and I'd, I'd love for you to and push back, it felt like baseball players were bigger when I was younger. And maybe when I was young relative to 30 years before that, people were saying the same thing. But it just felt like uh, Ken Griffey Jr., Frank Thomas, Randy Johnson, I mean, guys like that were – every bit as as famous and popular as any NBA, boxing, football, whatever. Again, my personal opinion, it doesn't feel like those guys are as out there as that. Do you, do you see that? Do you not see that? Because that's one thing about baseball is, you know, you could go into a bar when I was 20, you know, when I, 20 years ago and have an argument about Ken Griffey Jr. versus Barry Bonds or something like that. I don't really know if it's as much anymore, but again, that's just my opinion. Well, you know, that's interesting. People say that, and yet this current young generation of players, led by Mike Trout, by sure. the way, is really attractive. Baseball really is blessed with a lot of great young talent. And if you look at Mike Trout's numbers for his first five or six years, they're better than any player who ever played. Sure. So I um I think that um, I do think that's going to help us too. And it is. Look, um, I, I will tell you. I saw. I see a lot of games, but I look at the places like Wrigley Field, Bush Stadium, Milwaukee Miller Park, a whole bunch of where there's a tremendous amount of excitement. They're drawing a lot of people, um, and they're not bothered by the very things that we're talking about. So. Look, I'm not saying that they shouldn't do something. I'm saying they should, and I believe they will. I'm very confident. Very good. I would add, I live uh, probably about 15 miles from Dodger Stadium, and there are on any given night, 50 to 60,000 people there. So I guess I, I probably, uh, you know, living locally, not the best example. What are the things that you enjoy about baseball right now? I mean, you probably have more time to consume the game as a viewer, as a fan, than you have had in decades. What, what do you enjoy when you sit on the couch and you're flipping between games on, an, on a, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday night? Um, I, I, well, I'll tell you what I enjoy. I enjoy the level of competition. I enjoy... Um, when we have races and the divisions there are races, the, the really high intensity, I saw it here last year. I've seen it in a lot of places. Um, and the fact of the matter is, I, I know people are concerned about too many home runs and too many strikeouts. You said it best before. Baseball goes through its evolution. And, it, you know, there are certain things that will walk out and will go into other things. But I, I'm... I think when you watch games, I'm telling you the sport is really attractive. 
yes, you can make the case that games last too long sometimes and so on and so forth. But, you know, I watch people in the 8th and ninth innings. There was a game here a week ago Sunday, mm-hmm. Aaron. It had 45,000-plus, biggest crowd of the year. Um, and um, the Brewers came back and won the game. I wish you could have seen the people in the 8th and ninth inning. Nobody left. People standing, cheering. I see it in St. Louis. I see it in Wrigley Field. Uh, and, and, and I go on and on and on. So I'm, look, it's a great game. It's always been a great game. But like everything in life, it goes through periods. It goes through, uh, and, and, and they have to deal with that. But I said earlier, they will deal with it. Yeah, I was going to say one thing that I don't think that I realized until I read your book is the passion that people in Milwaukee, your hometown, have. Uh, and you take uh, readers through step-by-step. You get the Braves in town when you're a young guy. Uh, they leave, and you were the guy really helping behind the scenes to bring a team that eventually became the Brewers to town. I don't know how much you can get into in a, a Reader's Digest version, but that was one thing that was really interesting is you kind of lose all the dynamics and just, just you know, as we kind of sit here in this sports culture of, of teams coming, teams going, you yourself were a fan that was kind of scorned, upset, whatever, and you actually helped get the Brewers to Milwaukee. Well, you know, Aaron, I've always said, and I uh, this is true, that of all the things that have happened to me, and there have been a lot, and it's sort of been remarkable and stunning in the end, the thing I'll always be proudest of, is bringing a team back to Milwaukee. I was just a kid. The odds were huge. They were stacked against us. And so, um, and, and people here in Milwaukee and Wisconsin really understand that, and um, it's something I fought for. But it turned out even better than I thought. Um, it in what ways? It means a lot to people, community, and it means a lot to, to people all over the state. And so... Uh, it just it, it worked out remarkably well. And I was going to say the other thing, too, and I'm bouncing around here because there's so much to cover, but I guess, you know, I, I lived through your commissionership, and but I didn't really kind of piece together until I started reading this book uh, and, of course, also uh, just doing some research on you, how much the game did change under your watch, uh, interleague play, wild card, World Baseball Classic, all that kind of stuff. Is there one or two things that you're most proud of during the time that you were commissioner? Um, yeah, you're right. There were more changes in 22 years than really before in the history of the game, and I, I'm proud of that. Um, the wild card, oh, I took a lot of abuse, if you remember, <laughs> yeah. way back. Yeah. Oh, man, did I take it. Get, get into that. And, so uh, what was it about just – it? was it the nostalgia or what was it that everyone was so furious about? Uh, you know, I always say that baseball is a social institution and um, reluctant to change. Sure. And it is. It was – after all, in 1992, and, and when I – if you'll see it early in the book uh, – Bill Rogers uh, wanted me to keep it in, and I did. I said, I inherited a blanking mess. You and did. You know what I... Used some language I wasn't and, expecting. Uh, and, and I did, because there was no change. Look, we had expanded two or three times. We hadn't changed anything. We had a lot of teams that by Labor Day were gone. And it just it made no sense. So the more I talked, and, and the two people that really helped me in the wild card were... John Harrington of the Boston Red Sox 
and David Montgomery, who just passed away, unfortunately, of the Philadelphia Phillies. And the more the three of us talked, and then I talked to everybody in baseball, and then people were outraged. Oh, he's ruining the game. Oh, what is he doing? And he, and look how well, look how it's changed the history of the sport. It was so good. We added another two teams, and got, and guess what? There are some people that added, would still add another two teams. It was the best thing in the world. But baseball was reluctant to change. But that's what we just couldn't go on the same way we were going. We're adding teams and, and had the same schedule, and it made no sense. Yeah, and it is funny because I do remember those years before the advent of the wild card. And I mean, you had teams winning 95, 98, 100 games and not even making the playoffs. I mean, that just seems insane to think about in this day and age. Well, it is insane. I, there's no question. Look, even now, and. Uh, even now we have some divisions that are, look like they're almost over, but you got the wild card that's going to come in, in in August and September, and that's you know that's going to add a whole new dimension. So what we were doing in September was ridiculous, and yet I'm telling you, boy, did I take did I take the criticism. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> very good. A couple quick questions. We'll wrap up here because you're a very busy man. You know, you are really outspoken about the Barry Bonds situation in the book. And I'll just tell you personally, like I, I maybe I'm different than most, but but it isn't one of the first things that I kind of think about when I think about your commissionership. I think about the things that we talked about, the wild card, expanded playoffs, things like that. But you had a lot of real honest kind of candid thoughts on Barry Bonds, his pursuit of Hank Aaron's record, and and I was frankly kind of surprised with your kind of candor on this particular topic. Well, I in the whole book, I wanted to be as candid as I could be. Um, I knew we wouldn't always, um, you know, people wouldn't always agree, but that that I was like, and uh, you know, Hank Aaron and I are extremely close and um, have been for. 60-plus years now. But that wasn't the issue. The issue, you know, for the good of the game, the, the, the title, which we agonized over for, for a long time, was was really was really what I was trying to convey. And so, um, well, for years I had a good relationship with Barry. Um, it, there's no question that uh, I, I was not happy with some of the things that, that, that went on. And Barry himself was a difficult personality, as I think his own teammates would, would tell you. <laughs> so that that's, you know, I, and I communicated that. What about George Steinbrenner? I haven't gotten to the excerpt yet. I know that uh, he was very cordial when you were an owner. You guys played in an ALCS when you were an owner of the Brewers. He was an owner of the Yankees. I'm told there's an excerpt where uh, you and him did not see eye to eye on a couple topics when you were commissioner. I didn't hear that last thing. Oh, I, I just said that um, I heard – I haven't gotten to the part of the book yet, but I have heard there are certain parts of the book where maybe you and George Steinbrenner didn't see eye-to-eye eye on certain topics when you were, in fact, commissioner. Well, you know, that's true. And and yet, as I say in the book over and over, we were very, very close friends. Our families were close. We were very close. He and I rarely have ever agreed on anything, but he turned out – not only was he a great friend and, and could be very difficult, but he was great for me while all the years I was commissioner. And um, he did, in the end, for the good of the game, vote on some things that were clearly not in his best interest. Could he be difficult? Oh, you bet he could. But, but he did a lot of 
uh, I'm uh, George and I were very close, and I do try to communicate that. Yeah, no, I was going to say, and when I talk about earlier about the personalities in baseball, uh, when I was younger. He was certainly one of them, and it, it is funny to think about now an owner being in a lot of ways kind of larger larger than life in a way that even some of the players aren't. Uh, really quick, last couple things I'll let you go. Uh, there is a, a big yes, – I was going to say, there is a big ep- excerpt on the 2001 World Series, which of course happened right after 9-11. I imagine that amongst the many things that you had to deal with, uh, that was probably just the decision-making process and everything was probably pretty tough, right? Well, you know, Aaron, it was really difficult. It was a heartbreaking time. In fact, as I say in the book, the owners were actually here for a meeting and had to go home. Some of them drove home from really? there. And um, I agonized for uh, four or five days and with including the President of the United States and other people. And we finally reopened on Monday, the following Monday. And... Um, that was when I was flipping around on television and the great Jack Buck was on in St. Louis and he read a poem and at the end he said, should we be here tonight? And the crowd roared and I, I actually cried. I had one of my granddaughters, Marissa, was with me and couldn't understand why I was crying. And then we had the World Series weeks later. And it was, especially the games in New York, the third game I'll never forget, the most dramatic stadium I've ever been in. Uh, The president was there throughout the first ball, crowd chanting USA. It was was so emotional. The whole World Series was emotional. But um, I guess what I would say to you in the end, in our own little way, I hope we help the country come back to health. And and so I feel good about what we did. Yeah, no, I was going to say that that's something that – really stands out from my time as a baseball fan, all that. Uh, the book is, again, called For the Good of the Game, Bud Selig, former uh, commissioner of Major League Baseball. Don't know if you know off the top of your head, the book is out July 9th. Are you making any appearances, any signings anywhere that people need to know about? Well, I'm, yes, I'm going to, I've got obviously around Milwaukee, but in New York, uh, Atlanta, Dallas, um, they have me going all over, so the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> all right. Tell, well, I'll tell people to uh, keep an eye out for their city. That was, again, Commissioner Bud Selig. Bud, I appreciate the time. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Aaron. A pleasure to talk to you, and I look forward to seeing you soon. All right, so a big thank you to the former commissioner of Major League Baseball, Bud Selig. By the way, big month for commissioners on the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Had Oliver Luck the last episode commissioner of the XFL, and Bud Selig today. I thought Bud was awesome. I genuinely appreciate his time. Very fun interview, very fun segment. Uh, And, yeah, I don't know how much we'll be talking baseball, but when you have a chance to interview the former commissioner, you do not turn it down. All right, so you guys know sometimes I do questions, user-submitted questions at the end of the show. And I got one today, and it's pretty good. It's from Josh, so if you remember... Late last week, I was talking about the Indiana-Kentucky basketball rivalry and how basically it kind of came up last week. There was not really any new information, but somebody did ask John Calipari about it, and he kind of just said, like, look, you know, we've been over this. I offered them, uh, you know, they want to do a home-and-home, or they did at the time want to do a home-and-home, 
And, you know, we're, we're just not interested in that because of the Christian Watford shot. They storm the court. Anthony Davis, uh, Darius Miller, all those guys, they get pushed, they get shoved, all that stuff. And so John Calipari's alternative was let's play two games in Indiana, in Indianapolis, at the uh, football stadium, Lucas Oil Stadium. Let's get 40,000 people in there. Let's turn it into an event. And Indiana said no. Um, and as I said on the last episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. I'm like, I don't really get it from the Indiana perspective. Like, I, it makes no sense to me at all. Like, why would you turn down a chance to play Kentucky in front of 40,000 people in your home state? And so Josh reached out to me. And it's not, I don't know if it's a question or a comment or whatever, but here's what he said. Hey, Aaron, first of all, congratulations on the wedding. Josh, thank you. As I said, to open the show, so many of you guys reached out. I genuinely appreciate it. It was an incredible weekend, at least until Kawhi Leonard ruined the the wedding for at least a minute. Then we got back to the Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. All right, so he said, I was thinking about your conversation, UKIU, as a diehard college basketball fan, as a diehard Kentucky fan, excuse me. And he said, our non-conference schedule is as follows. We play Michigan State in the Champions Classic. We play Utah and Las Vegas. We play U of L at home. We play Ohio State in the CBS Sports Classic. We play in the Big 12 Challenge, which isn't 100% confirmed, but I'm hearing Texas Tech in Lubbock, which, by the way, I'm going to have to do some digging on that, Josh, because if that is true, that is going to be bananas. And I hope it happens um, because I think Texas Tech is one of the emerging programs in college basketball. I think it would be good, although obviously uh, you, you can't really go wrong with Kansas, Kentucky. But if you can bring, you know, I think the big thing for college basketball is if you can build up more brands within the sport, I think that's a good thing. So I think Kentucky playing Texas Tech on that stage would be really, really, really cool. Anyway, he wanted to say this. This is what Josh said. He said, We offered India to play them in, we offered to play Indiana in in the state of Indiana twice. We didn't ask for one game in Louisville and one game in Indianapolis. We let we let them have both in Indianapolis, and they still turned it down. And this wouldn't be an issue if, if Indiana fans hadn't cursed out Anthony Davis's mother or nearly killed Darius Miller and the student managers in 2012. What are they thinking? They blew it. And so, Josh, I don't know if it's really a question or a comment, but I agree 100% with Josh here, is I think that Archie Miller, I think as he tries to build this program, and he might not get a chance if he has another season like last year. I don't know how long he'll survive. But, you know, I I think you have to think about it from a branding perspective. And I think talking about the team I just talked about, Texas Tech, is a great example. I know the Texas Tech staff a little bit, and what I can tell you definitively is this, is that Texas Tech, you know, last this time last season, was really pushing. They wanted to play Duke at Madison Square Garden because Duke plays at Madison Square Garden every single year. And the thing about Chris Beard, he's not afraid of anybody. He's a very creative thinker. He reminds me of a young John Calipari in the sense that he's always thinking big. How, what can we get involved in? What events can we be part of? Who can we play and where? Uh, as I continue to build this Texas Tech program into what I think he believes will eventually be an elite program in college basketball if they're not there already, and I feel the exact same way. And so I bring that up because Josh's point on Indiana is so well taken. Archie Miller is trying to build up the University of Indiana, right? And so what's better than playing a hated historic rival in your own state when you're trying to recruit that state? Because I think, first of all, as Josh points out so eloquently, it, they're not asking for a one in one home and home on neutral courts, one in Kentucky and one in Indiana. They're asking, Calipari offered them two in Indianapolis, two in the state of Indiana. And so you'd think 
if the Indiana marketing department and ticket promotions and Archie Miller d- does his job, they should have more fans than Kentucky there. And it's in their own state. And I think it would be so great for recruiting. No disrespect to uh, Montana State or Eastern Washington or whoever they're going to play that extra game out of conference. But kids come to these colleges for two reasons. One, it's obviously who's going to best prepare them for the NBA. But they want to play in big games. And I know Indiana has the ACC challenge where uh, they faced Duke the last few years. They faced North Carolina in the past. We'll probably find out pretty soon who they're going to face this year. Sometimes they have the Gavit games, which is uh, the Big East, basically the Big East Big Ten challenge. Um, and, you know, and, and, and so I get it from that perspective. They already have big games on the schedule, plus 20 league games. But I'm telling you, man, for Indiana, what would be bigger than playing the University of Kentucky in your home state? And I think that's a game that would rate really well. I think it's a game that would look incredible on TV in a football stadium with 40,000 people, 30,000 people, half in red, half in blue. And so I just don't get it from Indiana's perspective. I get it from Kentucky's perspective. I get it from Kentucky's perspective saying we're not playing a home and home. And from from Kentucky not really pushing it because, as Josh points out, they got the CBS Sports Classic. They got the Champions Classic. They got the Big 12 SEC Challenge. And those are always the premier games, right? They always play either Michigan State, Duke, or Kansas in the in the Champions. They usually play North Carolina or UCLA in the CBS Sports Classic, although this year they will be playing Ohio State instead. And Ohio State's probably going to be actually be pretty good this year. And they always usually get Kansas in the Big 12 Challenge. And so I get it from Kentucky's perspective, but they're willing to go to Indiana State in their own building, and play them, not their building, but the, the football stadium. And so to me, I don't get it. I think it's a great point by Josh. I didn't even mention that on the last episode. So please continue to send your questions to Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. That is where I will answer all of them. And I think I'm done for today's show. So unbelievable show. First of all, shout out to me. What other podcasts in America do you get? NBA talk off the top, college football talk. The commissioner of Major League Baseball and then college basketball talk to conclude. I hate to brag. I'm the only guy in America that put out a podcast like that this week. I guarantee it. And by the way, I was good on everything. Let's be honest. That was amazing. I may be married, but I'm still on fire when it comes to my my, my sports takes. So, uh, again, quick programming note. Uh, we will probably have Nick Coffee later in the week, but I also want to let you know that this is kind of that time of year where we're going to stretch – topics and and guests and and you know do some crazy stuff and obviously with with SEC media days next week we'll probably transition into a little bit more college football talk I will be talking college football during the fall I will be talking college basketball whenever there is a topic to discuss but if 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 it's you know September or August and there just isn't a college basketball topic I'm not going to force it so uh, just keep that in mind be patient with me I promise when we get closer to football season, we'll be talking a lot of football. When we get closer to basketball season, we will get back to college basketball, including the Big Ten, uh, you know, including the Champions Classic to open the season. And we won't stop talking college basketball probably until April, May, June of 2020. So that is all for today. Again, I so appreciate you guys listening. I truly appreciate all you guys who reached out to me in the last week to congratulate me on my wedding. Uh, thank you to Josh for the question. That is all for today's show. Also, thank you to Bud Selig, the legend, the commissioner, the baseball Hall of Famer. Thank you guys all for listening to the show. I truly appreciate it.
I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.